I mean, it might have just been one of her outfits. Or does she die? <laughs> you ever used a turntable before there, Jimmy? Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a show about uh, underappreciated, inexpensive records that are ready to be rediscovered. Uh, my name is Sean Hartman. I am joined by my co-host, Jeremy Ruggles, who is a outspoken Burger King Dollar Taco apologist. Oh, that is that is not accurate. <laughs> you got to own it. That's If I said it, it's true. We need uh, an intern. Need to fact check. <laughs> the the harsh truth is that's actually me though. Like I'm the dollar taco apologist here. I it's not even Jeremy. <laughs> I've had it. It's okay. I haven't even had it. I know I hate it, and like, I haven't even had it. Every, yeah, that's the thing though. Everybody's hating it without trying it. Much like many of the records we'll be profiling on this show. <laughs> oh, God, oh I see. Like. It's better than, like, the cheap Taco Bell taco. Neither of them are good, but if those are your only options, the Burger King one's better. This has me wondering if and we're cheaper. Gonna, are we going to ever talk about taco? Oh, Ooh. absolutely. Like, the entire discography. Okay. <laughs> okay, and uh, we're also joined by my other co-host, Peter Cook, who is a former cocktail bar waitress. Accurate. Wow. Our fact checker was in for that one. Okay, yeah, cool. So, Peter, you've selected the record for this evening. What are we going to listen to, and how does it relate to your former occupation? So I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. That part is true. Okay. Uh, well, if that doesn't give an indication, you haven't been living in society, because this, <laughs> we're going to be talking about the Human League's 1981 release, Dare, which came out on Virgin on... October 16th in the UK, 1981, and uh, mm-hmm. wasn't until mid-February of 1982 that it hit us in the States. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce, introduce a new segment of the show right now where Jeremy and I are going to rapid-fire grill you on questions that we can think of and see if we, you've done your research properly. True or false, the D.A.R.E. program in America to stop drugs was inspired by this album. False. Okay, was this band ever featured on VH1's Bands Reunited? True. I don't know. <laughs> Was it ever considered to start a sport called the Human League? Uh, I hope so. True. Okay. True. Are are they still touring today? And if so, how many county fairs have they played in the last three years? <laughs> yes, nineteen. Okay, he's done his research, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you can look all that up and see that it's accurate. <laughs> Fact check it, please. That much is true. <laughs> Uh, so, this was their third album, the Human League's third album, and I will admit, I didn't know a whole lot about them going into this. It turns out, a couple albums before this that were a lot more avant-garde mm-hmm. synthy outings, they were formed in Sheffield, England in 1977 by two synth players, Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh. 
And they had previously had an informal project called D- The Dead Daughters, which sounds like an already dead tapes band. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when the, they officially formed a band and they called it The Future. Uh, oh, like the rapper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had to change it because of The Future. They added uh, vocalist Phil- Philip Oakey and they rechristened themselves The Human League which comes from a sci-fi war game, a board game called Star Force Alpha Centauri, something like that. Now there's pro- there's probably, uh, I, I don't know exactly what the Human League was in this game, and there's probably some sci-fi board game nerds that are out there screaming it at us right now. <laughs> so. But the Human League was something in that game. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing Centauri right. That sounds right. We'll that. <laughs> if you have a copy of this game... Please send it to our P.O. box uh, with the trash records we demanded last episode. Yeah. Yeah. We may have a P.O. box by the time this airs. We'll edit it in. We'll yeah. edit it. If uh, we didn't, then we didn't get a P.O. box. So if <laughs> so, if you, if you want to DM us and get our actual address to send us this game, then we'll work something out. Don't give out our address. If anybody DMs us, don't give them my address. <laughs> you do what you want. All but... right. I'll roll the dice. So their early work was largely influenced by craft work, and they toured with Sushi and the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees, is that how you say it? No, I think it's Sushi and the Banshees. Sushi. Yeah, you got it right. <laughs> I thought it was Siwaxi. Yeah. And they also toured with Iggy Pop. Uh, so the first two albums were Reproduction in 1979 and Travelogue in 1980. Although that album reached the UK top 20, there were internal tensions which forced the founding members, uh, Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh, to quit the group in late 1980. And they went off and formed a group called Heaven 17, which I listened to and it sounds a lot like the Human League. Okay. (laughs) Noted. Uh, So a a friend of Oki's, Philip Oki's, the vocalist, named Adrian Wright, who was the director of visuals for their stage show, for the Human League stage show, he was forced to learn the the synthesizer out of necessity. Uh, So he was at all the gigs, now you got to play synth. Yeah. Uh, But he ended up, it turned out that he uh, had a knack for songwriting, and he helped write five of the songs on Dare. Hmm. Uh, Oki also recruited a sophisticated player, a, ba- a bass player and synth player named Ian Burden, who really helped flesh out. He has m- much more experience playing synthesizers than uh, any of them. So, And there was also someone named Joe Cali who came in from the punk band. Is it the Rosillos? Is that how you say that band's name? Or? Oh, that, that's one of those many <laughs> bands that I've seen a million times and like never thought about what the pronunciation is <laughs> to say it out loud yeah yeah rosios rosillos uh he brought him on in and on synth as well now there's an addition i guess martin ware that one of the founding members who departed for heaven 17 he had a high voice that was a crucial element to the backing vocals of the human league philip oki uh, sought out he thought he would get a female backing vocalist and happened to see these two teenage girls dancing in a club one night. It's it's almost kind of like the Skip Spence story of uh, uh, Marty Ballin seeing Skip Spence, Marty Ballin of Jefferson Airplane seeing Skip Spence in a club and going up to him and saying, uh, "You're my drummer." <laughs> no, I'm a guitar player. No, you're my drummer. Come to our get. Yeah, that's the classic the story or the legend of Skip Spence joining Jefferson Airplane. He just saw these two girls. They had an energy about them like they did not care 
what anyone thought around them. And he, they were, I think, 17 and 18. And so they had to get permission from their parents to join the Human League. He, he decided uh, their names were Joanne Catherell and Susan Ann Sully. So they joined as both uh, dancers and backing vocalists to the group. And having watched some of the videos from this time period once they joined, it is a good thing that they joined for their live performance because they add an energy that guys standing really seriously at synthesizers <laughs> do not have. Guys inspired by Kraftwerk. Yeah. <laughs> I could do that. I could stand behind a computer. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so Dare came out at a time and this, this new lineup was assembled and the band was in serious debt to Virgin, the record company, and were not really commercially viable. Uh, they needed to find something that was going to sell more. Simon Draper, I think, the uh, one of the heads of Virgin, got uh, this guy, this producer named Martin Russian, who had produced previously The Stranglers and The Buzzcocks, hmm. so, uh, several records by both of them. But he was much more experienced and really brought a pop sheen to their sound that was previously not there, a little more accessible. And he ended up earning a Brit Award in 1982 uh, for Best British Producer for his work on this album. I think that I'd like to, at this point, just play the opening track, The Things That Dreams Are Made Of. This is what I first heard when I popped this record on after finding it and not really knowing much about the Human League. someone would record in their bedroom nowadays and that's probably just a product of being that like 80s but there's like a thin sound to the drums and it's like obviously a drum machine it gives it this i think what is now like a totally different association from their time where mm -hmm. it was a cutting high edge. tech sound and cutting edge and now it feels uh like something that 
somebody made with like a cheap toy and like <laughs> the synths have that same kind of vibe of being kind of thin and weird sounding yeah which just gives it like a cool aesthetic now yeah interesting yeah. how it comes full circle like that um i didn't realize until doing research for this that they had the band was essentially all synthesizers and mm-hmm. drum machines and whatnot they're you know there's really no guitar in there i think there may be some bass here guitar here and there i'm not entirely yeah. sure on that but you watch their live setup and it's synths and tape machines and sure it was a super exciting time for music when you like think back on that how like popular music was so guitar dominated for decades so like it was this really like fresh kind of like rebellious move like we're done with that entire instrument from our parents and like it's all electronic and we're using synthesizers now so there's like a really cool feel of like adventure and exploration that you just don't have with those instruments anymore absolutely and so that one a few years ago that song was covered by dame funk Okay. Yeah, I just discovered that in the last couple of years that uh, Dame Funk actually did a pretty straight cover of that song. It probably in 2011, maybe mm-hmm. somewhere like that. That song does contain the word. He says something about dare in there, but that is not where the album title comes from. Is it inspired by a cover of Vogue magazine? Now, <laughs> yeah. I, that's just one of the so facts. They've, up, they've upgraded from the nerdy board games. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. can see it's a whole new band. Yeah, they're taking things well, to. It literally is a whole new band, right? Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> yeah, and uh, so Sean has said that that was something that stood out to him when checking out this record. Yeah, I had a phase where I was like getting into some of like the darker new wave stuff. Like I just started listening to orchestral maneuvers in the dark and was blown away at how good it was and how dark and experimental it was and was trying to do some online research of like what are some other bands from this time period with a similar vibe and i saw several people saying that the first two human league records were like that and then we're saying like different band after that different vibe more pop oriented not as good don't bother and i was like okay i won't and then like still have never found the first record because the first two are hard to find i do have a copy of the second one and it's amazing but yeah, up until a couple of days ago when you had said this is your pick, I'd really never listened to this album. And like, I love it. It's it's super good. It's one of those things where like, why did I never like form my own opinion on this? Why did I just like let the first thing I read on the internet be like, oh, well, that's now my opinion as well. And no need to ever like check this out. <laughs> yeah. That's why we're digging in these bins. That's the point of this show. That's the core of it. Exactly. And we're not coming at you as like snobby experts on this. Like that's the fun of it is we're all discovering these things at the same time too. Yeah. And I, I am not by any means while I enjoy synth pop new wave when I hear it. And, you know, as a teenager, I was into Depeche Mode and New Order and whatnot, but I you know, still kind of casually would have collections from those groups at that point in time. I, not by any means a connoisseur of synth synth pop necessarily, but when I I happen to, uh, I guess I'll go into this now. I happen to live with someone that both of you are familiar with, named Matt Meyer, mm-hmm. and we were in the Rock and Roll Hardings one day, walking around buying groceries when we lived together eight <laughs> years ago. Wait, you might. Just give a very, very quick synopsis on what Rock and Roll Hardings is for those who may not know. Yeah, geographically, if you're not from the area, you may not know. Rock and Roll Hardings 
was the Harding's is a grocery store, Michigan based, I would say. It's uh, Southwest Michigan. Southwest Michigan local. based, yeah. And they uh, there was one that was located just outside of the student neighborhood Vine, uh, the Vine neighborhood that was on Howard Street, I believe. And that was known as Rock and Roll Hardings because you were always going to have a rock and roll time when you went there. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a slightly lower quality grocery store than what you might find in other parts of town as well. And like borderline, like OSHA not compliant in its oh, dirtiness. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> I just thought it was because all the like people in bands shopped there and you were just liable to run into a rock and roll person when you were there which is true yeah it's all true like, multifaceted <laughs> r.i.p rock and roll hardings <laughs> yeah gone now yeah. it is gone now so i matt meyer and i were walking through there and the elephant in the room that we will get to don't you want me the song the mm-hmm. big hit off of this record that is probably the reason you can find it for so inexpensive of a price. Yeah. Uh, that was playing overhead. And, you know, it's a song that I've heard overhead in the overheads of grocery stores and here and there my whole life, but had never really paid attention to. And Matt's, Matt Myers points up to the overhead and says, really like this human league going on here right now. <laughs> and I'm like the human league. Yeah. That's a name I've heard. I've heard this song. It's been creeping in the background of my life, you know, the whole time. I found a $5 copy of Dare at the Corner Record Shop. Mm-hmm. may have been while I was working there, around 2012, 2013. Five bucks, why not? This has that song on it. Don't know anything about it. And I popped it on and that song came on, the things that dreams are made of. And just immediately I was on board with, with yeah, the whole album. Yeah. Every step of the way, I was just blown away by the songwriting and Kind of, I think, the sort of almost, like you said, Jeremy, the almost nowadays would sound like a bedroom DIY fi <laughs> type of aesthetic of it uh, happening from a record from 1981. So I know we've, we've probably in the past episodes we've gotten to that later, but that is how I found this one. So the Human League at this point were, uh, there were several singles that were released in advance of this album coming out and the sound of the crowd was the first of them and it was actually a different recording initially released uh, than the one that's on the album but it was the first time with the uh, two backing vocalists and it's a really fun track but kind of dark and that's the third song if you could go ahead and cue that one up Pocket with the print of a laughing sound. 
So that's a song when you sent this along for us to listen to, I was like, well, that's just fully lifted from a Kraftwerk song uh, <laughs> model, the mm-hmm. melody there. Yeah, I think that they uh, wear their influences on their sleeve at, at some points there, especially uh, in, in that case. But with like a little bit more of an upbeat, kind of trying to be danceable energy. But again, like not necessarily knowing how to craft a song like that. <laughs> it's like really just kind of stabbing in the dark a little bit. That, so that was the first uh, the single that they put out from the album. It was a different version, which I haven't heard. They had another one called Love Action that was in advance, which is on here, and Open Your Heart. So there were three songs that were re- released as singles before the album dropped. Huh. Which I feel like that's something that happens nowadays, maybe, but I don't. Back then, I feel like that was fairly uncommon. I don't know. I don't know if you know how that works, Sean. I mean, it kind of depends on like the area of music and what they were doing. Yeah, well, in, in this case, I think they were trying to really hype the band up. Because mm-hmm. I know in like the soul music world, a lot of it was like you would get allowed to do one forty-five, and if that was a hit. And then you could do another one if you had a string of hits. Then just craft an album around it. But I don't know if that was necessarily the approach for like you know the more pop area and like the new wave world it might have been to some extent. Yeah, trying to generate interest in the band or feel out what's your direction going to be. I know there was one other single that didn't end up on this album that was released between the last okay. album and this album. Sure. So, well, they- especially with a, a band completely changing members, I would imagine some of the executives would have been super nervous, like. How much do we want to invest in this project that wasn't even very successful in the first place? Like, yeah, totally. It's kind of amazing sometimes when that you know a band persevered through something like that yeah. as tumultuous as losing your two founding members and mm-hmm. hiring your uh, one of your stage and then people did like another six plus records after this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they kind of found their sound at least the commercially viable sound right right. let's go ahead and uh, love action is on the other side jeremy let's listen let's check out a little bit of that
<laughs> just going. It's kind of there. Mm-hmm. That's like the stage guy. Like, yeah. I'm just going to do this. <laughs> I found my, found my one key having a hit, and I'm going to keep rolling with that. Don't mind me. That key. the meowing key. Yeah. <laughs> meow, meow, meow. I love it. So, yeah, you'll notice on that one and the other songs we listened to, uh, the backing vocalists kind of come in here and there, mm-hmm. kind of minimal participation. So they had these three singles that came out in advance of the album, the new lineup, and they, they were moderately successful. They definitely were like kind of the band's commercial breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. The album comes out, and Simon Draper at Virgin wants to release another song and there was the song at the end of the second side last song on the album don't you want me that originally in production the original skin synth score was much darker than what is heard on the final version it was much harsher and martin russian the producer was unhappy with the early versions of the song and remixed the track to give it a softer and in vocalist philip oki's opinion poppy sound and he hated it, mm-hmm. he, and he thought it was the weakest song on the album and had put it at the end of the album. And he didn't want another single. He's like, we put out three singles. The, you know, the public is, had their share of the human league for this album. <laughs> <laughs> and, but Simon Draper, he wanted a fourth single and fought Oki tooth and nail uh, on, it, on it being Don't You Want Me. Oki conceded under the condition that a large color poster accompany the single to make up for the substandard song. Hmm. <laughs> so that was Don't You Want Me, and of course it became the group's biggest hit. Of course. Yeah. And it's one of the best-selling singles of all time in the UK. Yeah, you said like number like 26 or something? Uh, 23, 26, somewhere around there. Yeah. 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 The thing is, it's funny too, because I, I kind of feel like, you know, as I mentioned, the song has been creeping in the background of my life. I've heard it here mm-hmm. and there. I think a lot of people hear it and you hear the chorus, the don't you want me baby part. Right. I, I But the thing is, you listen to the song and it's it's actually kind of a weird song. And I don't know if yeah. you have any thoughts it's on that. It's interesting you mention that because I was driving around with a friend yesterday listening to this record and I was like, you know, we're doing this podcast. This is the one that Peter Wait. picked out. Time out. Your car has a record player. <laughs> yes. I have one of those limited edition like Cadillacs or whatever that had a record player built you into would. it. Yeah, yeah, you would. Yeah. They made like actual vinyl specifically for those cars though, where the grooves were deeper and the needle wouldn't jump out while you were driving. I, uh, I don't think they ever repressed the human league's dare for that <laughs> format. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> did I distract your train of thought? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. So yeah, I was driving around. I was like, yeah, we're doing the Human League's Dare, and he's like, I've never heard that record. I was like, well, you know one song off it. He was like, no, I probably have never heard it. And I put it on. He's like, I've never heard this song before. I was like, just wait for the chorus. You've heard it. He's like, no, I haven't heard it. And then the chorus came. He's like, oh, this song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those songs where you hear the chorus, and I think it kind of might be in maybe not to the same uh, degree, but it might be kind of like. Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, mm-hmm. where you he, people hear the chorus and it's a love song or pining, unrequited love. The type. chorus was used for like a Chips Ahoy commercial not that long ago. <laughs> was right? it? I'm pretty sure it was. So like the last time it entered the public consciousness outside of walking around in grocery stores was just the chorus <laughs> in a commercial. Yeah. Deeply associated with food. This yeah. <laughs> 
and so yeah phil philip oki has has he's since embraced the song more it sounds like probably because <laughs> it made him a lot of money yeah. for the rest of his life yeah <laughs> he still thinks it's overrated and he also thinks that it's there's a common misconception about it he says it's not a love song but a nasty song about sexual power politics that's what it always felt like to me uh, every time i hear i was like this song seems kind of fucked up like, yeah well, and that's so that brings me to the point of the uh, backing vocalist comes front and center for a short time yeah. in this song, um, Suzanne Ann Cully. She is suddenly put to the forefront and allowed. The song starts with the. Uh, it was inspired by the film A Star Is Born, starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Okay, about so a, they weren't inspired by the 2018 film. Yeah, <laughs> in 1981. <laughs> Okay. The uh, it was about a singer who meets and falls in love with an established rock star, only to find her career ascending as his declines. Mm. And, and Lady Gaga dies. That's how it ends, right? <laughs> Did I spoil it? Spoiler alert! After the, you've spoiled it, <laughs> I, was there? A, did they remake a Star Is Born? Did, yeah, I, I, yeah, with Lady Gaga. With Lady Gaga, she dies at the end. <laughs> For those who haven't seen it, she dies. Lady Gaga. This song was inspired by uh, by that or influenced by that. And the song starts with the male narrator having his piece about, don't forget how I made you. That seems to kind of be what he's getting at. Yeah. That, that was one of the questions I had about this song. That was like, who is that vocalist? And like, why is she on it? Is she like the singer of a different band? And this is like a guest appearance? Or? So that's, uh, I didn't, having not really ever looked into the Human League's lineup, I didn't realize that there were two... Yeah. backing vocalists all over this record largely they're just kind of doing backgrounds sure. so to speak and uh, but on this one she suddenly comes front and center mm-hmm. and she said that it was just kind of luck of the draw it could have been either one of them that was given this spotlight on this track yeah so he says you know i, I picked you you were working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when i met you i picked you out i shook you up and turned you around turned you into someone new now, five years later on, you've got the world at your feet. Success has been so easy for you, but don't forget it's me who put you where you are, and I can put you back down too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he then says something, um, you've changed your mind. You better change it back or we will both be sorry. It's kind of like a threat. Gross. So the thing that for me saves the song is that they then give – the woman a voice mm-hmm. and kind of retorts him you know the the line that we teased at the beginning of i was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar that much is true oh is that what we were talking about <laughs> but even then i knew i'd find a much better place either with or without you kind of giving that voice kind of the retort to that for me it seems that it's more a, a commentary on the corruption of sure. the, the system. I mean, it borders on like Machiavelli in that first verse. <laughs> like, I would they hope were. it's uh, not, not, not meant to be that way. Yeah, I feel he's playing a, a character in this song that mm-hmm. you know he's calling it a nasty song of, sure. about sexual power politics. Because even with like the themes of this song, they don't really seem to match the rest of the record. No. Yeah, and that could be another reason why he wasn't too fond of it. Sure, it it doesn't really match the rest of the record production wise, songwriting wise, and 
for me, even the the chorus seems almost separated from those verses. Totally. Like, like it, it doesn't even matter what the verses would have been from that. People just remember the two lines and the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I honestly, it had passed me by, you know, mm-hmm. and I, it's like, I kind of noticed that it was a duet, but I never really paid attention to what they were saying. And then I kind of went, this is kind of messed up. Yeah. But I think it's a commentary on it. or It's supposed to be. He's not saying that the, this outlook is a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Question. You, having done the research, was that like the literal what happened? Like, did he bring her into the band as a backing vocalist? It's funny because I thought that too, because of that, the story of having discovered both of them is, as far as I can tell, that's not the case. Like, he's not saying this to his singer or yeah. how it's viewed. I mean, obviously... At this point, they were unknown still, these backing vocalists. Uh, This isn't like a Fleetwood Mac. Like, they're like playing out their love fights. No, as far as as I know, and my research didn't go that deep, but as far as I know, they were all on very good terms, and he wasn't trying to throw some shade at any of the members of the band. Well, I suppose we can... Uh, I think everyone's heard this song, but now you can listen to it, paying attention to those uh, the dynamic that's being presented in these uh, verses.
That was obviously like a mega hit song. And I think we, we maybe touched on this a little bit in the first episode with Jimmy about how these records, um, like tons and tons and tons of them get printed up uh, because there's money behind it. Yeah. And in this case, uh, you know, sometimes they're just pushing a certain artist and it happens, but like it doesn't catch on. Or there's also this kind of other dimension of the like one hit wonder albums uh, from bands like the Human League that nobody knows any of their other material. There's not a Human League super fan club as far as I know anymore. So these albums don't hold value, but there's, well. Yeah, there's some similarities to the Jimmy Spheres angle. Um, But this one's a little different where they pressed a ton because the single hit so hard and like everyone loved it and people bought the record but it's kind of a weird thing of like probably more like casual collectors and maybe like wedding djs own this record than anybody else people who are into like you know like the hip new age stuff are gonna be like oh like i don't need that one that that song is like super overplayed i don't want to hear that but then a lot of those kind of people might not actually know that the rest of the record slaps. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's not like that song. And there's a ton of examples of like that um, where there's only one hit on it and it's a total outlier from the rest of the record. And the rest of the record still feels fresh and undiscovered because it's never been played for the most part. One of my favorite records, Modern English, has that song, I'll Stop the World and Melt With You on mm-hmm. it. But that's like the f- maybe like sixth best song on that album. Like the album is amazing. <laughs> And there's all these other great songs on it, but you know everybody just knows that one hit. That, that's funny because uh, when I decided to pick this one as my first uh, album we'd talk about, I realized that I didn't even listen to the second side as much, and it has the hit on it, but I was so blown away by all the unknown songs on side one mm-hmm. that I often would just get to the end of that, play it over again, you know, thinking, well, I know the song at the yeah. end of the side too. And I'm that's just... that's really how you're going to be the life of every party is when you can like drop knowledge on human league B-sides and like non-hit like album deep cuts, like get ready. Yeah. Sure. You can hang out with Dame Funk and talk about the opening track on this album. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else to say about this one. I think this album is fantastic and it's amazing that you can get it for $5. There's probably a lot of other synth pop and new wave albums that fetch a much higher price that it's yeah. on par with if not maybe better than so rank it from one to 23 stars for uh 23 for the amount of uh, yeah being the best 23 stars it's probably got 21 stars out, okay. of tw- out of 23 so what could they have done to give it that final two stars where would those final two stars yeah. be well i think as great as it is that the uh, Don't You Want Me is the big hit, it really feels detached from the rest of the record. So it would have been a perfect record without the hit. Well, <laughs> not without it, but if it had, I think that if it had the darker tone that was originally intended, uh, it, sure. it would be a complete... It, it feels like it's tacked on. But to, if that was the case, then this would be like a $30 record. <laughs> that's true. Very good point. Uh, all right, well, to 22 and a half stars there. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, overall, I'm pretty blown away by this album. And I really, now that you, when we were talking about this, mentioned their earlier stuff, which I had never checked out. I was very ignorant to the Human League prior going into this. And the earlier stuff sounds awesome, too. The first two records, from what I checked out of them. 
in I'm brief. Definitely going to pick up the next inexpensive copy of Dare that I come across, and I also want to see what the next records sound like. Do they keep this going or what? I'm very yeah. curious. The only one I know they have that song "I'm Only Human" from a few about five years after this that gets played in retail. Mm-hmm. I heard it in all my years working in retail. Yes, bangers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a comp to look for. All right. Well, this has been. I'd buy that for uh, a, a dollar. dollar. Thank you.